It will forever thrill your heart. As again and again and throughout all of eternity and infinitely so, our infinite God rolls out great, big, awesome, surprising thing after great, big, awesome, surprising thing. He does exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we have the capacity to ask for or even to begin to imagine, guys, that's true with our sufferings, that's true with our sicknesses, it's true with everything. And that is a wonderful thing to carry in your heart as we return for the last time this morning to our study of John's vision of the new heavens and of the new earth, but not just of the new heavens and earth, because we've seen the last couple of weeks that primarily what this is a vision is, is of the new city. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's revealing to us. That's what he's showing us. And it's a new city, and listen to the language, that lives in the new heavens and new earth. That's an odd way of describing this. Why? Because a city doesn't live somewhere. It's located somewhere. People live The city has a place, but what we've seen as we've sort of dug into this vision is that, okay, the city that John is describing is not a literal city. It's not a city with streets and buildings and bridges and ballparks and all the things that we associate with a city. You know, we drive down I-95 and we can see Fort Lauderdale from a distance and we say, there's the city. That's not at all what he's describing. He's doing what biblical writers do all over the Bible. They lay hold of things that we understand and then they use them as an image to help us understand something else. And he's using this idea of the city and his really detailed detailed description of it to describe me and to describe you and to describe everyone else who comes to faith in Jesus Christ in this life, in this world, in the here and in the now. Okay, he's describing who and what we will be, who and what we will become, who and what we will experience, who and what we will enter into as we enter into the eternal day that is the new heavens And in the new earth, as we as the new city of God take up our residence there. And it's beyond anything that we can ask for or imagine. And even just to describe it, he has to use poetry. It's astonishing. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to look, first of all, at why it is this picture of us, which is the picture of the new city that he comes and describes so carefully for us, is so beautiful to us. And then step by step... Beautiful reason by beautiful reason, I want to stop and remind everybody, including myself, of what the purpose of this vision is, because the purpose of this vision is not to inspire wonder. It is not to engender awe. It is not to move us to worship. It is not to give us something to hang on to when we suffer in this world. It is not to give us a brand new measuring stick by which to measure the actual value of everything that we're entrusted with in this life. It does all of those things, but that is not at all its purpose. John is an evangelist. And its purpose is entirely evangelical. In other words, even though he's a poet, he doesn't come as a poet. Even though he's an artist, he doesn't come as an artist. Even though he's a biblical scholar, he doesn't come as a biblical scholar. Even though, apart from Jesus, he is the foremost end times expert. It's not his point. He comes to us as an evangelist with this image to drive us to Jesus Christ. The only one in whom this eternal destiny can be found. And it's freely offered. And he comes to us as well, then having driven us to Jesus, to drive us out of the doors of this church and out of the doors of our school as a church and school community, as a band of brothers, if you will, and of sisters, into this world to lead them into a growing relationship with this same Christ. That's the purpose. So why is it beautiful? Well, as I look back through the vision 
I came up with three out of probably 10,000 reasons that I want to give to you this morning. And I want you to see, first of all, that this picture of this city that, again, is us, okay, is beautiful to us because John, through his poetry, makes it clear that in that next life, in that next world, in the then and in the there, we are going to experience the full, the complete, and the glorious redemption of every bit of suffering that we endure in the here and now. In the world we live in today, in the life we're living presently, and here's how he does it by the building materials that he uses to describe the city. So what are they? What is the city made of? It is made of jewels. It is made of gold. It's made of pearls. So, for example, John says in Revelation 21, the last part of verse 11, he says that it's radiance. Now get this, because he's describing the city that is us. He's saying our radiance in that day will be like a most rare what? Jewel. There it is, like a jasper. It should actually be translated diamond. It's a white stone, and it's a clear as crystal white stone. He goes on in verse 18, and he says, the wall of this city that is us was built here. It is again of jasper, that same diamond white stone, while the city was what? Pure gold. Not just gold, but pure gold. Clear like Glass, he says, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, and now he gives us a list. The first was jasper, the second was sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates of this city that again is us were made out of what? Twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single, apparently ginormous, pearl. And the street of the city that is us was, again, pure gold. Not just gold, but pure gold, like transparent glass. So what are the building materials? Jewels? Gold? Pearls? Okay, now ask yourself, how are those things made? Where do they come from? Let me answer that. Jewels and gold are formed in the crust of the earth. You ready? Through great heat and great pressure. And those are things that you will not experience in the new heavens and in the new earth. I mean, John told us that right out of the gate two weeks ago. He said, listen, before I get to what the city is, let me just tell you what's not in the city. And then he just gave us this marvelous list. As I said two weeks ago, it's like he reached down into our experience in this life and gathered up all of the crud and then piled it up in the middle of the room like so much manure and said, all right, guys, everybody take a good look at this because none of this is going to be a part of your existence in that new life, in that new world, in the then and in the there that is yours freely through faith in Jesus Christ. So none of that's there. But it's all here. That's why that resonates with us. We get great heat. We understand great pressure. And what he's saying by laying hold of these building materials to describe you is that, guys, you can't even ask for or imagine now the beauty that will come out of the great heat and pressure that you suffer here. It's astonishing. What about the pearl? Well, pearls are made by this little animal called an oyster that I know many of you eat, and I just think it's crazy. I I mean, I don't know who it is that first went in on the oyster, but it had to be a dare and it had to be a guy, right? I mean, nobody, because nobody opens the shell and looks at an oyster and goes, yeah, I think I'm going to eat that. My goal is never eat that. And don't even come talk to me about how good they are. I'm not touching that. It's just, it's a violation of nature to do something, to eat something that ugly. Thank you. 
All right, so here's the deal. The oyster produces the pearl. But what is the oyster? He's this tiny little sea creature. He suffers where? In the darkness of his shell and in the seclusion of the sea. In the dark and in the deep. But his suffering produces something magnificently beautiful. And in fact, in ancient times, the pearl was considered the most valuable object on the planet. Did you know that? More so than jewels, more so than gold, more than anything else. God has given this little creature the the ability to take whatever little irritant that comes into his little home, his little shell, his little tomb, I guess you could even look at it that way, and begins to irritate his skin. Well, God has given him the ability to secrete this organic material that surrounds whatever the irritant is, piece of sand, piece of shell, whatever, it doesn't matter. And it surrounds it with something that is soft and with something that is round and as it turns out, with something that is beautiful. What is John saying? By the very building materials that he uses to describe the city that is not a literal city, it's me, it's you, and it's everyone else who comes to faith in Jesus. But it's us then. He's saying, listen, when you get there, that then that is yours now, safely through faith in Jesus. Okay, here's the deal. All right, you're not going to have any more heat. You're not going to have any more pressure. You're not going to have any more pain. You're not going to have any more hurt. You're not going to have any of these things that irritate you and flame you in this life. All of it, all of it gone, but it's better than that. Because when you get there, you will see what God has done with all of those things to make you all the more beautiful. By the way, what do you have to do to get gold? You have to dig it up out of the ground, don't you? Jewels too, incidentally. It's an image of resurrection. How do you perfect them? You you cut the jewels, don't you? It's painful. You get rid of the imperfections. You cut them in such a way that they reflect light powerfully and beautifully and magnificently, the light of Jesus in this instance. What do you do with gold? You you take it and you, you subject it to great heat. You melt it down. You stir it again and again as the refiner then skims off all of the imperfections again and again and again and again. God is doing all of these things with his invisible hand in your life right now. And for the oyster, you got to go get him and you got to open him up. I'll take the pearl, you can have lunch. Okay, that's the deal. God is at work in your life. And this, John is telling you, is what he's doing in your life. Which I will give you should inspire wonder. It should engender awe. It should move us to worship like we could just stop and sing a song. It should give us hope, guys. For the hope that the gospel comes to us with in the midst of our suffering is this. It's this. And it should give us a measuring stick by which to measure everything in life. But more than anything else, what it ought to do is drive us to this Jesus who can and will redeem all of our suffering and for forever hand it back to us as precious and glorious in his sight and in ours. And it should drive us out into the streets of Fort Lauderdale as a church, as a school, as individuals and as families to lead other people into the same growing relationship with Christ that we presently enjoy. Why? Because like us, they suffer too. But unlike us, and just because of Christ, not because we've, you know, we're any better, but unlike us, there's no hope. There's no meaning. <laughs> It, it, it just, you know, you're just an accident victim. 
There's no purpose. There's nothing to hang on to. There's no expectation of redemption in this life or in the next. God has given the gospel to us. That gospel, that's just part of it. We cannot keep it to ourselves. So the picture is beautiful, first of all, because John, through his poetry, makes it clear that all the suffering that we experience in this life, in this world, in the here and now, will in the next, in the next life, in the next then and there, if you will, be utterly and perfectly and gloriously redeemed. But then secondly, the city is beautiful because the city that John describes is utterly pure. Or to put it differently, we are utterly pure because if you've missed it, we're the city. And again, we've already seen evidence of this. So again, John described our radiance in that day, and he says that our radiance, again, will be like a most rare jewel, like a jasper that is what? Clear as crystal. He's told us as well that the city and its streets are made of pure gold. Do you hear that? And that it's transparent like glass. And so then what he's calling us to try to imagine, because we don't have the ability to grasp this entirely, is a world in which you and I and everyone else is completely free of things like selfishness. Like passions that overrun us and cause us to do the most irrational, stupid, and self-destructive things. All of us. We all do it. Of wounds of hurts and insecurities and all the dysfunctions that they cause in our lives, all of the ways that they warp us and shape us and affect us of foolishness. I live for that day of insecurities, of immaturities, of profanity, of addiction. It is a world of total freedom and not just from the effects of sin and from the consequences of sin, but from sin itself, which again should... All right, inspire wonder and engender awe and move us to worship and give us hope and give us a new measuring stick by which to measure the things of this world. But but he gives us the vision to drive us to Christ and then to drive us out into the streets that we might lead others to Christ, that they too might find their eternal destiny within the context of this amazing, incredible picture and future because like us, they are impure, like us. But unlike us, there's no deliverance. There's no redemption. It doesn't end in glory, either in this life or in the next. So the picture is beautiful because it's a picture of a, of a future in which because of Jesus, all our sufferings of this life are redeemed. It's a picture of a future in which because of Jesus and His work in us, Okay, you know what? We are altogether and entirely pure, but it's most beautiful. It is especially beautiful, and this is the biggest of the three, because John makes it clear through his poetry that in the new heavens and in the new earth, we will live in the immediate presence of Almighty God. And we saw that in the passage of Scripture that you did your personal worship in this week, beginning in verse 15. John says, and the one who spoke with me, meaning this angel, who, if you know the story, is showing John the vision of the city, had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. And so the angel is surveying the city. And now notice the dimensions because they're staggering. He says the city lies four square. So it's a square and its length is the same as its width. So it's a perfect square. And the angel measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia. Okay, that is roughly 1,500 miles. But not just length and width, but height. For he then goes on and he says, and its length and its width 
and its height are equal. Look, this is not a literal city. But it's interesting how he's described this because what he's described for us is a humongous, perfect cube. Why is that significant? Because there's only one other perfect cube in the Bible. It's the Holy of Holies. It was found originally in the tabernacle built by Moses, but then also in the temple built by Solomon. So why is that significant? Well, what is the Holy of Holies? It's the place where God dwelt in the midst of his people. However, then... He dwelt in the midst of his people, separated from his people by tents and walls and priests and sin. And what John is coming to us and saying in this vision of the new city that is us, is he's saying, listen, there are no more walls. There are no more tents. There are no more priests. There is no more sin. You will dwell with God immediately, face to face. And that is an astonishing thought. It's the most repeated refrain of the whole vision, which incidentally, I think, suggests that it's the most significant part of the whole vision. Wouldn't you agree? It's sort of like he's coming to us and saying, hey, you know what? The most significant part of the whole experience of the new heavens and the new earth is God with you. It's Jesus. And I point that out because I think that when we think about eternity, we think about things like its peace and its joys and all of the other things that we've been talking about today and that are awesome. We think about all the people that we miss, parents, brothers, sisters, children in some cases, friends, coworkers who have gone on ahead of us in the faith and who we'll get to see again. And that too is awesome. But by repeating this again and again, this idea that God will be with you, God will be with you, God will be with you. It's sort of like John is coming to us and going, hey, listen, all that's fine and good and it's wonderful and I'm not discounting it. But the most valuable thing about eternity is Christ. He's the prize of all of eternity. Which since this life gives way to all of eternity, makes him the prize now. Does it not? And that remeasures things a bit. It means that you can have everything in this life and not have Jesus and really in the end you have nothing. It means that you can have nothing in this life, but with Jesus, have the prize of this age and of the eternal age to come. It's an astonishing thought. So about three years ago, a drunk homeless man named Jeff Qualick showed up in our church office and um, stumbled in the door, and Matt and Ken were there to let him in. And it's not uncommon for something like that to happen at any church, and certainly that's true for us too. And he wanted money, so it's not uncommon for that to happen either. And he came with, I think, a pretty common tale. You know, if you've ever worked in a church office or if you talk to a lot of these guys on the streets, there is a story that is almost ubiquitous. It's universal. It's amazing. It's good. It's powerful. It's persuasive until you hear it about the 93rd time. And then you go, yeah, now I see a little bit of a pattern here. Like, I don't know who came up with this story, but they should have trademarked it because everybody uses it. And the story goes something like this. Uh, I'm stuck down here. My family lives in another state. And they don't have the ability to get me home. But if I could just get home, I have a job waiting for me. I've got people that love me there. And they'll take care of me. I'll get off the street. Can you give me whatever the cost of a bus ticket is and food for a couple of days? Well, we didn't do that. So Jeff left, a little bit miffed. And then he came back about a week later. And Matt and Ken were there again. And a little bit humbler this time. And they said, well, you know, are you willing to take the help that we do have to offer you? And he said something like, well, obviously what I'm doing isn't working. And thus began our relationship with this really wonderful man. 
Really, really a great guy. So over the last three years, we learned some things about Jeff, and we learned some things from Jeff, like how to love, like how not to give up, how to have hope for seemingly hopeless people. We learned about Jeff that he's a bright, capable guy. When he's sober, if you knew him, you knew that. So he graduated toward the top of his class in high school. He graduated from the General Motors Institute. I don't know what that is, but apparently that's fairly impressive. He was 22 credit hours short of a mechanical engineering degree in college. He had taken a placement test with the military and was accepted into three of the four branches. But in college, he started drinking, and it just it took him over, and he became an alcoholic, and it, it, frankly, it just wrecked his life. And some of you can relate to that. You've been there. You know that experience. So as we began to walk with Jeff, and, and Matt in particular working with Jeff, and, and Jeff was like a brother to Matt and vice versa. And Jeff would come in here sometimes, and sometimes he'd come in here drunk, and he'd go, oh, don't tell Matt, you know, and I'm like, he's my big brother. He's going to come down on me, you know, and I said, I don't think you're going to be able to keep this a secret, but I just, I don't, I'm pretty sure he's going to know. Pretty sure. But when he was sober, he was an Uber volunteer. He would come to everything. Show up early, stay late, put the tables away, worked around here doing landscaping. We paid him to do stuff like that, which was helpful to him too. And tried to help him in a variety of ways. And he would be sober for periods of time and then fall back in. There was a nine-month period of time where he was sober and he actually had a job. He had an apartment. And then he took like a second job on the side. He was working for a painter. And, uh, and one day after work, that painter offered him a beer and he took it. And he fell off the wagon and he never really got back on again after that. And um, so a week ago Saturday, uh, Jeff was killed. He was hit by a car on Federal Highway. And I'll bet you weren't expecting me to say that as I started setting up the story. That's not typically the story you hear from the pastor. Usually this is the story you hear. And Jeff was in trouble and all this stuff and all the stuff I already said. But then Jeff got it turned around and Jeff got out of his addiction. And now we're going to ordain Jeff. And Jeff's going to be one of our pastors. And Jeff is on the addiction speaking circuit. And he's doing unbelievable things. And God's doing great things with his life to work with addicts and all of that. That's the story you typically hear, isn't it? And you know what? God does do that. So don't run past it. We have a lot of addicts of a variety of different kinds, alcoholics, drug addicts, porn addicts, many of which have been walking in recovery, some for days, some for weeks, some for months, some for years, some for decades in this church. And God is redeeming what they've been through by using them to help other people. I can give you names, I won't. So sometimes that is the story, and sometimes you get hit by a car on Federal Highway. But that doesn't mean that Jeff's story doesn't have a happy ending. Because here's what we do know, and he manifested this. Even in the midst of his struggle. Don't tell Matt. Why? He loves Jesus. Loved Matt. Loves us. He's an amazing guy. He died with, you know, like whatever he had on that day in terms of clothes and whatever he was carrying about with him. So from the world's perspective, we look at him and say, nothing. But he died in Christ. So was he poor or rich? And which are you? Are you poor or rich? 
Jesus is the prize of eternity, past and future, now and then. And here's what he holds forth, forgiveness and eternal life in which all of your suffering, all of it redeemed in ways that you do not have the capacity to ask for or even begin to imagine because it's so wonderful. Purity like you've never experienced, freedom from all of the stuff that you struggle with, the fight eternally over and not just for you, but everybody. What a world. I mean, just think about how much better it will be driving around town. And Jesus, God with you in the person of Jesus Christ. The prize of heaven belongs to Jeff. And it belongs to everybody who has faith in Jesus. And I'll tell you, you know, that should inspire wonder and that should engender awe and that should move us to worship and that should give us something to hang on to when it gets hard and difficult in this life. And that should, and don't miss this, totally recalibrate the way that we value the things of this world. It should do all that. But that's not the purpose. It should drive us to that Christ in humility and in faith. And then it should send us out as a driven people, to lead other people into a growing relationship with that same Jesus. And that, guys, is what our church and school is all about. We don't do it perfectly. Pretty sure of that. But I think the Lord has blessed us enormously and is using us to do great things. And by us, I mean you. I mean you. So for the last three weeks, this is the third of three, we've been talking about the mustard seed campaign. And if you'll indulge me, I'm going to say again at the risk of being redundant that I want you to imagine Rio and Bethany as a single tree, not two, but one tree, fully integrated. I want you to imagine us as a tree that is deeply rooted in God's Word, that is watered and illuminated by God's Spirit from above, that has a trunk of strong biblical, theological, doctrinal, leadership, academic training, that is connected in vital community by a vast network of branches, that is canopied over by leaves that are beautiful and that represent our worship, and that we are, Rio and Bethany, a fruit-bearing tree that bears the fruit of outreach and evangelism to everybody that we can in this city and in places like Haiti. And the fruit has a seed that carries our DNA. Here's our vision for leading people into a growing relationship with Christ. It's to grow the tree, to do what it takes to create the strongest, healthiest, largest, most vibrant, well-resourced tree right here where we're at that we can, and to then watch and celebrate as God raises up pastors and people, and we send them away with our DNA to plant other churches, other trees that will develop their own unique personalities all around this city, creating space within our own walls and creating new life that we leave behind in the form of these other trees and churches, hopefully, all over the place. That's the vision. It's the most cost-effective. We don't have to go buy some new campus so we can keep growing. It's the most strategically effective. Read, why plant churches? And you'll understand why. It's the most biblical. That's what Paul did. It's the most consistent with our history. We were planted, and then we became almost immediately a church-planting church in the 40s and 50s. It's amazing. He's just revived that vision given it back to us in this season. It's most consistent with our recent history. 
and that we helped form the City Church Network that now we've circled back with and said, hey guys, let's all get on the same spiritual train. We're all preaching on the same stuff. We're doing life together in community and want to plant churches together. It's awesome. And it's most consistent with who we are. We maintain a size that maintains our community. So there's all these different things, but here's what we need to do it. We need more space. We need more effective space. And that's what we're trying to accomplish in the short run through the Mustard Seed Campaign. The vision is not a three-year plan. It's a 33-year plan or hopefully longer than that. But now we need the platform from a facilities perspective to do that. So what I want to do is get out of the way. We're going to show you the third of three videos that we've created. Everything Rio Mustard Seed is at riomustardseed.com. All the messages, if you've missed them, please, I'm begging you, go back and listen to the first two messages. All the videos, all the information. But we want to show you this third video, and then I'll finish. Well, please do visit that website if you have not been there. It is like all things mustard seed are there. All the messages, if you've missed any of the messages, please go back and listen to them. I think they'd be very, very helpful to you. Uh, If you'd like to look at the first two videos, it's all there. Our campaign journal, which is kind of our brochure with all the details, all that stuff is there. Uh, But what is it about? Uh, It's about building a platform so that we can create here by God's grace. I mean, it's His work, guys, really. Um, the strongest tree possible from which to do gospel ministry in this city by planting churches and creating space within our own building and doing it and creating new life all over the city by the doing of that. So I'm going to pray, and then I hope that you will sing because what you've seen today should inspire that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our Savior. God, we thank you for the Son of God and Son of Man. Lord, the one in whom we believe and profess our faith and live it out. The one who condescended to join us in this mess of a world that we ourselves in rebellion against him made a mess of. With our fists in his face, he came in love, transcending our foolishness, transcending our selfishness, Transcending our sin and rebellion against him, he laid his own infinitely valuable life down that he might pay the infinite price that we owe you as a result of all of our offenses against the one who is himself infinite. It's a price we cannot pay. We lay claim to none of the glory. We give it all to him, Lord. He alone could pay the price, and indeed he has. How dare we hang on to that reality? merely for ourselves. Let us humble ourselves before Him. Let us come to Him with our sin and our addiction and our brokenness and all of our junk. Let us lay that at His feet, be filled with His Spirit, be raised, Lord, be formed in this life into the beautiful vision that we've seen today. And then, God, let us go out and lead others into a growing relationship with Jesus. Let us not keep that gospel, that truth to ourselves. So be glorified in us as we sing now, and for you alone are worthy in Jesus' name. Amen.